Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, and thank you to everyone who just came from my last live, which was about six minutes ago. I went to the toilet in between. I uh, put some um, uh, some clothes up. I uh, talked to Muku. Oh, oh, that's all you've missed out on if, if you've been sitting there for the last couple of minutes. Uh, Wagon Wheel is the podcast where we talk about cricket topics that you care about. So generally, people ask me questions. The best way to ask me questions is to su- support us on Patreon. There's usually a link down below. Actually, that's my groin or my laptop I'm really pointing at, but you get the point. Um, if you're on YouTube, uh, if not, there'll be a link in the show notes of the podcast platform that you are listening on as well. And if you go on the first class and above uh, section, you get to ask a question on this show. There's also other stuff like the Discord chat. Actually, I wasn't on Discord today. I have to go in and see what's going on with Discord. Um, but uh, thank you to everyone who has supported us on Patreon. If you're in the YouTube and you're desperate to ask a question, the best way is Super Chats as they get started and I can't miss them even if I want to ignore your question. Huge thanks to our supporters, HCL Tech, who love data and cricket and technology and I suppose we're all of those things. But the first one I have today is from Niran, who says, watching India's innings versus South Africa made me think a lot about your pieces on their lack of left-handers. This is a problem in Sri Lanka as well, where lefties are going extinct, but Bangladesh continues to produce them. I understand why they don't have left-handed batters, but why haven't India found a decent left-arm pacer? England has the same problem, mostly about tests. So England, South Africa, West Indies, India... I've all struggled with left-arm pace bowling over the years. I don't really know, you know, we'd have to go into sociological um, issues. I remember reading something at one stage that said Asian people who wrote in Asian languages struggled to be left-handed, but I wondered if they meant Southeast Asian, you know, more Chinese and Japanese, those sorts of cultures. Um, But I don't know uh, if if that is the case. And I'm also not sure if that's true, (laughs) right? it makes sense that there are more left-handers batting in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh, because there's so much left-arm uh, finger spin that you have to face. Um, so maybe those two things match each other uh, a little bit more there. But yeah, the left-arm pacing, I don't really understand why certain countries don't produce it, certain countries do, because there was a period where India had a lot, what, from 2000 to 2014, or whenever it was, whenever those guys all retired, that, that lot. Um Australia probably consistently had the most left-arm seam. Although New Zealand, if you go back in New Zealand's history, they've had a lot. West Indies had Garfield Sobers, one other, and really no one for a lot of their time. You know, even Obed McCoy hasn't quite come through. Um, and England struggled as well. I don't know what the reasons are. As, as I said, I, d- I don't know how, you know, why this is the case. But why in Australia, why does Australia seem to have more left-handed batters and fast bowlers in other places. Um, I don't remember anything being particularly left-handed about um, my life in Australia. Um, I'm not left-handed, I'll, and my son is left-handed. It, um, so if India want to recruit him, they are more than, um, you know, bowls, sort of Sam Curran-type deliveries. Um, he's available. Vivek says, other than the format variations, are there any variations within cricket that could spawn multiple different sports from the same current parent? This comes from your current comment in the last wagon wheel where you mentioned baseball and cricket could have a common ancestor. Uh, they do. I mean, I think we know that. They both used the term batsman to begin with. Um, and no, they certainly have a common ancestor. Um, format variations is the most obvious. I'm trying to think of anything else. You might, might we one day have... I mean, beach cricket is an interesting one. I, you know, there are certain people who think beach cricket obviously could 
um, still be around. Was it James Sutherland who said that would be the Olympics? Uh, indoor cricket is the other one. I don't think either of them are big enough. I do think one day we might have a distinction between turf wicket cricket and non-turf wicket cricket. But again, I don't know if there's anything big enough in that to split because I think eventually we will have cricket played on turf wickets and um, and on um, artificial wickets, you know, interchangeably. Um, even if they may not be fully interchangeable at the international level or T20 level, they'll certainly be quite interchangeable. Uh, sorry, not interchangeable. They won't be fully artificial. It might be hybrid wickets rather than fully artificial. Um trying to think if there's anything else you might get a situation where short pitch bowling is banned and there's like a spin-off format of cricket from that maybe is that a, po a possible one those are the ones off the top of my head that make the most sense vivek james says if t20 cricket ever went full american football i.e separate batting and bowling um within the greater team what special team roles might exist well, you'd have your fourth inning spinner i suppose would be uh fourth inning spinner and um New ball, morning one, um, seam bowlers would probably be the two off the top of my head. Would you have a specialist fielders, perhaps, for certain positions where you struggle to find fielders? I mean, it would make more sense to have a specialist wicketkeeper in that situation, wouldn't it? Even if they can only bat, they could still hold the bat a little bit um, and, and give you something. Um, oh, wait, I'm thinking test cricket. You said T20 cricket. Oh, T20 cricket. Uh, it, it depends on, I think, yeah, there might have to be more changes to the regulations. But, yeah, you would certainly have new ball bowlers, middle overs bowlers, death bowlers as more specialist um, if you have the ability to have, like, seven or eight bowlers available to you. Um, you would have someone who is just great at hitting certain kinds of spin would be specialists. Um, you would probably have players in your dugout, kind of like Michael Beer, um, Imad Wazim type cricketers who you just bring in for two or three games a year um, uh, in that kind of situation, but they're always in your squad. Um, I, I do think if you got to that point, you would have a couple of specialist fielders. I'm not saying that they couldn't bat as well, but you know Hayden Walsh Jr. type players um, would be really, really handy. I, I've been on record for ages of saying that major teams should have a Hayden Walsh Jr. type player when players like him exist. Um, uh, to just bring into the side when they need them. Uh, uh, James says, as tall as Glenn McGrath is, he was made to look mere average height in New South Wales team photos by the towering left-arm quick Phil Alley. Phil Alley was very tall. While I recall Alley never being in contention for the Australian side, how much impact did his height have in the way that batters dealt with him? Was it a whole other game to dealing with the bounce of, of someone, a bounce of someone McGrath's height? So remember that height is one part of bowling and we get very fixated on it, but no one bowls the ball from the top of their head. Right? I have a very long neck. My neck isn't giving – those extra inch that I have on my neck doesn't really help me um, when it comes to having a higher release point when I bowl, right, and all those sorts of things. The way that you collapse your action um, – I, I did this recently. The, the two players, I think, in the whole CrickViz database who have their highest release points are Jacob Oram and uh, Muhammad Afan. Muhammad Afan is six foot eleven, and Jacob Oram is six foot six or six foot five. Um, I did ask Jacob Oram about this. I think he said he was six foot six. So how do they have the same release point, right? And so the difference is that Jacob Oram didn't lose any height when he delivered, right? And uh, that certainly wasn't the case for Muhammad Afan, who did lose some height. So you do have some bowlers uh, who who certainly have uh, the ability to lose some height, but you know uh, Phil Alley is what. 
six foot eight, nine, six foot ten. So what would he have been? Probably around five inches taller than McGrath. Um, it it should have been it should have been very hard to face him. He, I don't remember him being a particularly skillful bowler. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know he was massively tall. Um, and obviously, uh, I'm just trying to have a look at his record. So first class cr- cricket, he took 90 wickets at 30 list A cricket. Um, nine wickets to 28. Interesting. I would have thought he would have been a better list day cricket. I felt like I saw him play a lot more than that. Um, also, his nickname is Barjas. Um, just saying that, uh, which is also um, an Australian comedy term. But um, so if if Phil Alley was using his full height, you know, also coming from the left arm, you are looking at a Marco Janssen, Bruce Reed uh, type situation, which is it's very hard to prepare for a player of that height, even if they're right arm. And if you throw in left arm, you know, the angles get very, very confusing. They've got a natural advantage over a lot of players. They still need to put the ball in the right areas. They still need to have a very good stock ball. Um, they still need to understand what they're doing, all those sorts of things. Um, and I think it's fair to say, you know, Phil Elliott, my memory of him anyway, was he was probably wasn't quite at that level with all those different things. Having said that, um, he didn't play a lot and they were a very good team um, for a very long time. Probably, if my memory was he's from regional. Um, yeah, yeah, I think he's from regional um, Australia. Um, and I think it took him a little bit longer to get into New South Wales setup and everything else. Maybe if he got more coaching. But your, your basic point is that being a left armor is already a natural advantage, but a slight one, obviously, in professional cricket. Being tall is a natural advantage. Being excessively tall is a huge natural advantage. So he's got three ups on a normal bowler, but Mohamed Shami just has so many more skills than he has. So you still got to factor those things in. Ian says, the festive period in the UK is so different compared to Australia. So with that in mind, what are your best Christmas, New Year, cricket traditions and memories? And do I include the best test matches watched over a festive period and games participated in? So I, I don't know if... I'm trying to remember we um we used to play cricket so i when boxing day boxing day is only a tradition that really gets massive probably in the 80s and so when i was young in the 80s we would have our big christmas dinner where like kind of all the families got together you know i know 30 or 40 people um and we would play cricket on boxing day so that's kind of my first memory of cricket and christmas um then I reckon my first professional game was a Shield game, Victoria, New South Wales, which I think was a New Year's Day game. I don't think it was a, a Boxing Day game, but it's the first game I remember going to. Uh, well, I, it was the first professional game I went to. Um, then as I get older, I suppose it's more, you know, I started going. My dad would never take me to Boxing Day because he didn't like the crowds. Crazy because he went to football crowds with 100,000 people, but he grew not to really like the crowds that much. So we would quite often go later in the test match. Um, my 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 best slash worst memory is, I want to say 92, 93. So it must have been Christmas 92 when Australia's playing the West Indies and Shane Warne's just on the scene. My dad on d- at the end of day three says, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to day four or day five? And because he trained me so much in cricket, right? I went, well, day four, I'm going to get to see a full day on day four. I might only get to see half a day on day five. Why would I want to go on day five? You know, some 12, 13 at this stage. And he's like, okay, so we go on day five. It's quite a slow day. Australia was setting a declaration total, but not really putting their foot down. I think Damien Martin made 60 or 70, but I don't remember it being particularly one of his best innings or anything like that. Uh, 
And the next day, Shane Warne uh, unleashes the flipper, um, takes seven wickets, um, Richie Richardson, all that sort of stuff, maroon hat. Um, so I missed out on that. But then 93-94, I, mean, I think I'm getting the years right. Was it 94-95? Might have been 94-95. I saw the Warner hat trick. Whereas that time, my dad found out that the tickets were free on day five. So he took us along um, and we saw Warren's hat trick. So, I, you know, I missed one big Warren moment, saw the other one. I saw Callis versus Warren uh, when South Africa drew a test match. I thought, Ricky Ponting get a Juno Runatunga out, I want to say. Was it a Juno Runatunga he got out? He got it at one of the Sri Lankan top order, which was just a memory that I always had. Um, you know, saw some really good Steve Warnocks, saw Kalu with Arana, um, uh, Smash of 50. Uh, all these are Boxing Day memories because that's that's kind of when it is, right? Uh, I think one year as a reporter, I went to the Boxing Day test in the morning and the Boxing Day T20 game in the evening, but maybe it wasn't Boxing Day T20 game, might have been the game the day after. But that was quite wild, you know, leaving your house at 8 a.m. and getting home at 1 a.m. from a full day of test and T20 cricket. Um, but yeah, those are, those are my main memories. Uh, it was always a weird time because you don't play cricket over that week and a half period in Australia because everything stops for the, the, um, Christmas holidays. So you spend a lot more time watching it than you do playing it. We're proud to have a relationship with HCL Tech. They love data, technology, and cricket, and we fit somewhere in the middle of all of that. Uh, Patrick says, if Lyon finishes his career averaging below 30, where will he rank among spinners of his generation? it's a really good question, Patrick. I still don't think he's as good as Graham Swan, um, but he's maybe more all-rounded than Graham Swan, and, you know, his ability to bowl better to right-handers. Um, but Graham Swan was so deadly when the conditions were in his favour, which is kind of what you want to spin it for. Your seamers should be carrying the load early on. Um, but, you know, he's below Ashwin, he's below Jadeja. He's probably, you know, Harath, I think Harath was a better bowler than him as well. Does that count as each generation? I think, yeah, there's a fair bit of overlap, isn't there, between those two. Um, and that's about it, isn't it? Everyone else, uh, you can make an argument that he's better than Swan. You can make an argument that Swan's better. Um, I think Lions, the longer Lion plays, the harder it is to say that Swan is... It's, it's not hard to say Swan is better, but it's harder to say Swan has a bigger impact. I think you'd already have to say that Lion certainly had the bigger impact. I mean, the help the Lion was picked young and... Obviously, Swanee was picked young and was punched in the face, so that didn't go particularly well. Um, but yeah, he's certainly not Ashwin, and he's certainly not Jadeja. Um, and Harath is the other one, and I would still think that Harath... But again, Harath's another player who was picked late. You know, there are all these different um, things that rattle around. But I think, you know, if Lyon plays for another four years and takes another 120 wickets, right? 100 wickets. He, he kind of has to go up to that Ashwin level, doesn't he? Um, well, you know, not to Ashwin's level, but he has to be up in that tier closer to Ashwin. Um, and if Jadeja ends up with 350 wickets just because of all of his injuries, um, what's Jadeja's wicket tally on at the moment? He's 35 and he has taken 275 wickets. It's a long way behind Lyon, right? I, I don't think anyone thinks, again, that he's not better than Lyon, but if you keep playing and then you bring your average down under 30, I, th I think it's a fair argument that he's at least on Jadeja's level at that point. And he certainly, if he finishes with an average below 30 and more than 550 wickets, I don't think you can really, with in good faith, say that 
Graham Swan had a bigger impact, even if you can argue that Graham Swan at his peak was a better bowler than Lyon, which I think is fair. And Jadeja will be in a similar situation. You can say that Jadeja is a better bowler than Lyon. I don't think anyone would argue that. But impacts and, and, and everything else, you would have to say this stage that Lyon is probably already maybe in that tier just below Ashwin. William says, what more do the Netherlands need to do to become a full ICC member? Uh, I don't think at this stage they're massively gunning for it. They're not very professional off the field. I think that's fair to say. Their cricket below international level is quite poor. Um, I don't think there's been a huge movement towards them getting test status. But having said that, if they would be the next team, I would have thought that would have got test status um, if that happens. But I haven't heard, like with Ireland, it was all the time. Ireland were telling you how they were sending themselves up for test status. The Netherlands haven't really pushed as hard for that sort of stuff at the moment. Um, but yeah, what more do they need to do? I mean, a lot of it just depends on, is there another team that's coming through at a similar time? Does, te- does Test Cricket just want another team? Um, does it need another team and everything else? So it's not just about what Netherlands can do, but from an on-field perspective, I think they've done everything they need to do. Uh, they've been pretty good team since, what, 2016, I want to say? Um, a long period of time with a lot of success. I think we, I think there was an argument that they maybe had to have as many big, you know, grandstand games. Now they have. So you can't argue that against them anymore. But, yeah, I mean, teams have certainly done a lot less and got test status than the Netherlands have. But there is an issue with the cricket behind the major scenes. But if you give them test status, maybe the government get involved again. That's a quite an interesting thing. Cam says, what is your favorite Boxing Day memory? Mine is probably Saywag's 195. Uh, now, the question here is, do you mean a Boxing Day memory as in something that happened on Boxing Day or something that happened in the Boxing Day test? Because I think the Shane Warne hat-trick is certainly the best Boxing Day memory for me, um, but, you know, didn't happen on Boxing Day. And as I said before, once I have the Callus uh, one, uh, which I thought was magnificent, Look, Saywax 100 was incredible. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Did Steve Waugh make a 100 with the tail one year on Boxing Day itself? If we're talking about Boxing Day itself. I remember also being there when Mike Hussey batted with the tail. I think it was against South Africa and Green Smith kind of lost the plot. But it was when that first thing, when people started putting all the fielders out on the boundary for the first time and Hussey just completely exploited it. And like Hussey's not one of my favorite cricketers or anything, but being there for that moment. But again, I don't think that was on Boxing Day. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm trying to think of things that happened on Boxing Day. Like, did did Simons make his 100 on Boxing Day when he got really emotional? Um, that is certainly something that I remember. Um, I don't know if it's favorite memory, but England destroying Australia in 2010 was quite full on. Um trying to think of some of the other boxing days brett lee go through india on a on a boxing day and um, yeah i'm too old now i can't remember anything Cap. Phillips says heavier bats are often stated as one of the reasons for improving ranged hitting do lighter bats have an advantage for more defensive batting styles uh bats aren't that much heavier in fact i mean bats are lighter now than they were in the 1800s um what a bat bats aren't that much heavier now what they've managed to do is get more wood into the same um, amount of um, bat size, if that makes sense, uh, which it probably doesn't now. I've said it out loud. But, yeah, they, they compress the wood, but the wood is lighter, the bats are drier, 
Um, and so uh, I don't think bats are massively heavier now than they have been. I think they're a little bit heavier just because batters have got stronger and bigger. Um, but I don't think there are I don't think there are many players in the world that would have a bat heavier than Clive Lloyd's or Wally Hammond's, right? Um, those sort of I think Wally Hammond was famously heavy. I know Clive Lloyd certainly was famously heavy. Um, I have found that heavy bats are better for defensive shots and uh, light bats are better for attacking shots, especially if you use a light bat, it gives you far more flexibility with the kind of shots you can play. Much easier to play the short balls, much easier to play against spinners and everything else. Um, but, you know, I, so I used to do this thing uh, where if, if I was asked to open, I was use a heavier bat, go out there and just, you know, get my head over the ball and drive the ball back down the ground. Um, and then when I wanted to cut loose, I would take a lighter bat. And that was famously how cricketers used to do it. I haven't talked to many players. I just don't think bat weights are as important as they once were um, uh, to people. But yeah, I, I certainly know some players with two eight two nine bats. So um, I don't think it's gone that differently. One um, of the reasons batters switch bats uh, own so many different bats. So because they make them drier now, Philip, they do chip up and break a lot more than they used to. Um, uh, bats are now made to last a short period of time, but you know, give you more bang for your buck uh, or less bang for your buck, I suppose, but more, more explosiveness off the blade, but that actually chips away at the bats. Um, there are some players who change their bats for spinners. Um, if you're playing sweeps and reverse sweeps, that's certainly a time where you might want a, a lighter bat to come out. Um, if you, uh, you might want, if, if the bowlers start going for Yorkers, you might want to bat a, a bat with a lower center of gravity, um, or a higher center of gravity. If you're playing, um, someone who's bowling short to you. Um, there's also just feel and everything else. Um, so yeah, there's lots of different reasons a batter will change one. James says, many people lately have noticed the resemblance of UK PM Rishi Sunak to Ashish Nehra. Have they? They're about, aren't they about a three foot difference in size? <laughs> like, would you, would you not have to stack two Rishi Sunaks to make one Ashish Nehra? What are some of your favorite examples of cricketers resembling, uh, resembling celebrities? Um, I'd say Sean Pollock and Ron Howard of Richie Cunningham from Happy Days. Mutai Muralisson is Alfonso Ribeiro as Carlton Banks from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I remember at Crick Info, we had to stop them doing lookalikes because if a white person did it, all people who weren't white looked the same. And if um, a non-white person did it, all white people looked the same. And it was like, it's really, really uh, racially dubious to be able to do that. It's quite one, kind of why I like in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang where they do the cross rage, uh, cross um, race um, lookalikes at times. Um, uh, this is a fantastically interesting question that I'm not sure, James, I have any uh, answer for. I'm trying to think of a player that looks like a celebrity and I'm drawing a blank. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't help with that one at all. Sorry. I mean, you may, you may have thrown me with Ashish Nira Rishi Sunak. Ali says, what is the best case scenario for Pakistan, South Africa, New Zealand, Sri Lanka test squads going forward? They barely play tests and their star players, even specialists, wants to earn from T20 franchises as much rather than playing first class cricket or even list day. So how can they even compete with the big three and their deep pockets that can afford them to incentivize test cricket? Should the rest of the test fandom give up on competitive test cricket outside the big three? I mean, it's interesting you say that with South Africa ahead of India in a test match at the moment. Um, I think when money comes in, I mean, you know, Germany is a good football team, right? And a lot of it has to do with finances. And, you know, Europe are very good at football. And Brazil um, has incredible people resources in football. 
that's none of this is a surprise that those places are good at those sports. Um, consistently, I should say. You bring money in and it becomes more professional. West Indies were the first team to really get professional, uh, you know, through the whole county cricket, league cricket, packer, uh, rebel tours type situation. Um, and then Australia cotton on to that and they get professional. And off the back of that, we're now seeing India and England get professional. I don't know how you do catch up with that, right? Because most of the peaks we've had in cricket, really post-World War II, have had something to do with professionalism. And the other boards are not going to be able to work out how to make as much money unless they vastly change the way they do things. And, you know, if they own their cricket grounds and the cricket grounds become concert venues or, you know, they find a, an alternate um, stream of revenue uh, that isn't just cricket or they, you know, manage to make their cricket far more uh, important. But that's the kind of the case everywhere, right? Um, uh, so, Ali, I don't I don't know if that, you know, if there is a soul for this, if we're being honest. We're rapidly going into a franchise world. The, if you want to know what the real answer to this is, it's franchise test cricket, <laughs> right? That is the answer to your question, Ali, because then the best Pakistan, um, South African, Sri Lankan players would get paid a fortune to play it so they would continue to do it. But we don't seem to be that close to that as an option at the moment. Um, I certainly haven't heard any rumors or anything going around. So, yeah, that's where we are. Uh, that's the end of the Patreon questions uh, for this episode. Thank you again to everyone uh, from Patreon for those. Uh, we'll be back in a moment, but I'll have a look if there is anything in the um, in the chat. Uh, but this is the wagon wheel, and I am and will remain as long as I remember Jared Kimber. Remember that cricket is a funny game. 100 years before we protected our heads, players looked after their groins. So don't be as stupid as old cricketers and protect your computer today. NordVPN is the protection I use when facing cyber shortfalls or when rights issues try to dismiss me. NordVPN will help you get through the straight bat of any geo blocks so you can watch all the cricket you want. If you need your pitch changed, well, NordVPN can doctor any surface to a new location so that your IP address is set up for you to win. Want to buy an associate cricket shirt from a place that won't ship to your country? Select NordVPN. Want to watch a game on a free stream in another hemisphere? NordVPN. Or if you just want to watch a clip on social media that a cricket board won't allow you to, promote NordVPN to pinch it for you. So if you need a VPN, go Nord. Use nordvpn.com forward slash Kimber to get a huge discount off your Nord VPN plan plus four additional months for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. The link is in the show notes. Protect your computer like a cricketer protects its nether region with Nord VPN today. All right, welcome back to Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimber. Uh, I've got a couple of questions here, not too many. Um, I mean, I've been talking for the last two hours. I'm sure that people on the YouTube are probably sick of me anyway at this point. Um, but there's a couple here. If you want to do some super chats afterwards, feel free to come um, in. But Shrikanth has done a super chat, in fact. It says, how many current Australian players can get into Steve Ward's side of 2000-2001? Uh, Shuin, Smith, Cummins, Stark. Well, Peak Stark. I don't know if Stark right now. Maybe it's Hazelwood, Warner, Kawaja. Uh, the rest, no. Um, uh, would Manus not get in? Uh, who else have we got? I mean, head on current form would get in, wouldn't he? Head ahead of Langer, wouldn't he, at the moment? Um, Kawaja ahead of Langer? Um, although I suppose head bats further down the order. Um, yeah, that, I mean, 
I mean, Hazelwood would play ahead of Gillespie, would he? Stark play ahead of Brett Lee? Certainly Pete Stark. I mean, it kind of depends on what era you're looking at here, right? Um, for these players, because, I mean, if you're doing current Australian players, they're probably not as much in their peak as they were maybe a couple of years ago, although they're not that far off, some of them. Um, I mean, the way he's currently playing, would Mitch Marsh bat at number six? Probably. Cameron Green would probably be playing in that side just because he's Cameron Green, I think. Um, Nathan Lyon would certainly be the second spinner. I would have thought, oh, there you got McGill, don't you? Nathan Lyon would certainly play on a overseas tours. Um, but you are comparing it to, you know, maybe the best side of all time, Shrikant. So, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to be perfect, is it? Uh, Gunther says, I just wanted to ask, oh, I'm new here. Well, I'm not, but thank you for coming. I just wanted to ask how the scheduling works in cricket. South Africa last toured India in 2019, and this is India's second tour in two years. New Zealand hasn't played in South Africa for seven years as well. It works stupidly. I mean, it's it's about bilaterals, right? So you have to make an agreement. So you have to be talking to people. Then you say, well, this is the time when we're free. And they go, oh, but we got someone else coming over at that time. It's just done stupidly. It should be done independently, obviously. Uh, it should be done by one global body. Um, it should be done professionally. And instead, it's not. And it's part of the reason that international cricket's in the place it's been in, because it does look stupid when you actually start to take a deeper look at it. Some of it's about around TV money, but some of it's not. Some of it's about just random like England and the West Indies seem to play each other all the time and and I don't think that's necessarily about England making any more money because they don't make a lot of money playing the West Indies anymore so it's a very stupid system um, and certainly should be taken away from individual boards who generally don't do it very well Udit says India Ranji batting averages are extremely high and Sheffield Shield batting averages are comically low yet they produce players of similar quality is it the pitches um I don't think uh, Sheffield Shield, I mean, during Australia's great batting era, Sheffield Shield, there was a lot of players with huge batting averages, right? Um, that was a, quite a common thing that you had, you know, Martin Love and Matthew Elliott and uh, those sorts of players, uh, and Matthew Hayden, all averaging, you know, 50, 55, um, 60. Some of them do top up their averages playing counter cricket, so it is sometimes harder to tell. Um, I think in general, Shield matches probably just have pitches that are a little bit more friendly uh towards bowling i haven't i haven't seen enough rangy cricket though to make that 100 percent. but you do look at the numbers overall and and that certainly would suggest to be um the case um but yeah i think this is more of a bowling era of australian cricket and so the averages are probably a little bit more low because of that also points tables have come in but i don't think if you look um st statistically through the history of australian cricket that first-class batting averages are particularly low. So I don't think that quite holds up. Ranji, Ranji, I would assume, I don't it's really hard to say. So they usually say, and I don't think this makes any sense, but they usually say that when you have a weaker overall pool, that batting averages are lower. But sometimes, surely the opposite is true as well. And sometimes the batting averages are comically high. I mean, you see a lot of these associate players with just ridiculous ODI batting averages, right? And, and T20I batting averages. Um, they, they'll never be able to replicate against proper bowlers. Um, so I don't know if that is true. So, you know, Ranji is such a sprawling big system. Um, I know India has a lot of talent, but also, you know, 
there's a lot of people who play Ranji cricket who probably shouldn't be playing Ranji cricket, like shouldn't be playing that top level of cricket as well. Um, or that there's, you know, it should be a better tiered system. So everyone could play, maybe you have, well, let's say 30, 35 teams, um, but you have division one, division two, division three, um, and people move around a little bit more and everything else. But th those sort of things haven't happened. Um, but yeah, I do think that Australia produces very good batting pitches in test matches, but not as much for its first class cricket. And India maybe is the complete opposite of that, at least at the moment. Samit says, Pat Cummins, Jaffa Dababa, or KG Rabada's dream ball to Virat Kohli, which of the two is the most aesthetically pleasing wicket in Boxing Day test as of the end of play today? Um, uh, I, I think I'm in a bit of a Rabada phase, like, you know, having done so much research on him. So I'll probably go Rabada at the moment. Uh, Shivam says, according to some people in the 90s, um, batters are better than this era batter because rules... Uh, changed in favor of batters in this era. Didn't they? Okay. By this logic, bowlers of this generation should be better than 90s bowlers. That's where the logic always falls down. When when someone says that, you always have to then follow up with the question. So you're saying the bowlers are better now than they were in the 90s. No, no, no. Just the bowlers are getting wickets now because the batters aren't any good. It's like, okay. Well, if the batters were so good in the 90s, why are they still getting me? Ah, oh, the bowls were so good. So you're saying that all cricket was better in the 90s and that Nothing has really changed and that the rules and playing conditions haven't changed to assist batters in modern cricket. It's just it's just nostalgia porn, right? Unfortunately, um, we get it in all facets of life all the time. Look, I think the 70s and 80s, or certainly the 80s and 90s are a really interesting time for cricket because it's really the birth of international cricket uh, as we know it. You know, the World Cup start happening. You have Pakistan, West Indies, Australia, New Zealand, all having great eras. Um, England drop off, India win a World Cup. Um, you know, so you know, India have um, Sachin Tendulkar. Zimbabwe play some fantastic cricket. Um, Sri Lanka win a World Cup from nowhere. Uh, you know, all these incredible things happen. I think it should be remembered forever as a revolutionary time in cricket, and it might be the last golden era of international cricket. Um, could be the first and last, if we're being honest. But. Uh, the, you know, I, I, I just don't know where this, this idea comes from. Um, I think batting got very easy between 2000 and 2016 globally. And I think in that time, um, I think in that time we overestimated the batting talent side of it and underestimated how much the conditions had changed from the 90s through to 2000s. Clearly something happens in global batting. Uh, around that 2000 period, and you can see that the batting averages start to go up to ridiculous amounts some years. Um, so I do think there was a very, very big change from that with that in mind. That said, um, I think that sort of 90s and 2000, uh, 80s and 90s is probably the first real time when we have covered wickets for the first time. And I think by the 2000s, what probably happened is the, ground, the curators around the world just nailed them and got very, very good at them. And then there's been a few changes since then. You know, obviously you've had things like, you know, India making spicier wickets and South Africa making intentionally spicy wickets. Um, and then you have the opposite. You have um, England and, and New Zealand doing more batting wickets. Um, and so things have got a little bit more 
random at times over the last, and obviously the wobble ball. Someone said that they love hearing me say the wobble ball, so I'll say the wobble ball again. I'll quadruple wobble ball if I have to. Um, and, and I think a few things changed, but I do think uh, that pitch has got a lot better. So batters take over from 2000 to 2016. And, you know, if, and, look, and it's the same players who were playing in the 90s start making more runs, right? It's a really great batting era. And when it's the same players making runs who weren't making runs before, you do start to say to yourself, well, something else has changed. Um, and so there's no doubt the pitch has got better. I'm not sure it's easier to bat now than it was. I don't know what what regulations or laws or playing conditions you're talking about that have changed. The bouncer rule is probably one. Uh, but the fa- but um, uh, uh, secu- uh, security, what am I talking about? Um, batting equipment has got a lot better. Not Forget the bats, but everything. You don't get your fingers broken as much anymore. Arm guards are far better. Helmets are far safer. You know, you can get in line without worrying. You Look at all the players around the world charging down the wickets to the fastest bowls in the world now, not really worried, right? In the 90s, if you did that, you were seen as crazy the way that Dean Jones was, right? And now it's just something you do in a test match. So, so I do think um, there have been a lot of changes. And I think that it was harder to bat in the 90s than it was from 2000 to 2016. But 2017 to 2021 or 22, whenever it was, it was harder to bat then than it was in the 90s. Um, and we know that because, again, we have the data that say the same bowlers who were getting smashed everywhere suddenly started dominating everyone. The players didn't change. The results changed. But if you want the absolute answer to this, Shiv, I'll tell you what it is. Most people will always say that the era that they grew up in between the age of 8 and 22 is the era when it was better than it was in any other time. Because when I grew up in the 90s, do you know what they all said? Oh, one day one day, cricket has completely ruined techniques. Um, players don't play like they did in the 60s and 70s anymore. It just keeps going. And going music oh music peaked when i was 17 it's weird that isn't it movies peaked when i was 17 uh last one for today unless there's any sneaky late super chats nikon says i feel like the 2007 world t20 world cup format was best it was a world t20 at that stage wasn't it i said i read it out correctly and you wrote it as a t20 world cup not that you're wrong as well that's what it should have been called reasonable league play with just enough jeopardy any reason the icc isn't following this pattern i cannot even remember that i mean that was such a inconsequential inconsequential god words uh it's one of my let me have a look what do we have there um mm, 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 mm. so you had three teams in four groups so they got rid of that didn't they in case like in that case it was scotland playing india pakistan but after what happened uh with the 2007 wait you are saying the t20 world cup aren't you yeah uh so they got rid of that because of the uh situation around upsets um and one upset could have such a big difference so i think that's why they went away from that in general um so what was that so you each played two games in the first round all right and then you got to the super eights and everyone played three games in the super eights of which there were two groups yeah and then you got to the knockouts which were semi-finals finals okay so what don't i like about this yeah i mean I kind of feel like if you're going to do it with a group of three, which I don't think we'd ever see again, you kind of have to have multiple games. Like I've got no problem with Kenya or Scotland or 
Zimbabwe getting through to the next round. But if they're going to do it, they can't just win a single game. Um, I don't think that that should ever be the case. Um, then the group B, I, I kind of like quarterfinals. I know I've, I've been thinking about this, you know, I did the big history of the world cups. In fact, I'll, one day I'll do a video of, on it, but you know, we did the podcast series and the one thing I sort of came away from it all thinking was, um, that I like the quarterfinal system. Um, I don't think we need a round of 16 or anything like that. I think that would be crazy, but I do think we are getting to the point where there are eight teams that legitimately have a chance. And I like the idea of winning three knockouts to win. You can only do that if you have the bigger World Cups, of course, which is where we're going towards. But yeah, I kind of I kind of like group games, a super, uh, maybe a super 10 or a super 12. So um, uh, maybe I'm adding too many games to this now off the top of my head, I'm trying to think. But, you know, and then a semi, and then a quarterfinals. Um, and maybe the quarterfinals needs to be when it's a slightly bigger World Cup, maybe over... 16 to 18 20 teams but but either way so i certainly think um that's the case but yeah this doesn't look terrible but i don't think you should have a world cup where kenya beat sri lanka in a game they qualify um uh, and go through to the next round i think that's probably a little bit too shallow a tournament let's be done on the wagon wheel i uh, thank you very much if you haven't seen the kigisa rabada video um head over there um uh, and and take a look it was uh, great work from muku um and uh you know real fun we, we turn it around quite quickly as well so go over and have a look at that uh but we've got some other things we've got the history of india south africa uh coming up and we've got something on meg lanning uh and a couple of other videos on the main channel so uh we also we did a great video on sri lanka on all the politics that have gone on behind the scenes of reasons it's not pretty but it's worth going over there as well uh but i'm jared kimber this is the wagon wheel and i will see you again next time thank you for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are also many other extras as well, including a Discord channel where you can chat to me directly. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. We are an independent podcast, so support us any way you can. Maybe give us a review, subscribe, or share on social media. All of these things help us, and when it comes to podcasts, word of mouth is always the best way of making it grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Baron Kazi and Estelle Vasudevan. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston, and each episode is produced by Ishit Kaburka at Sound Potion Studio. Mukunda Bandredi, or Muku, as most people will know, is the head of our YouTube channels, and he also helps out with so many other things like the podcast recordings. And there's so many other people we could thank here, but I just want to thank all the listeners and all the people who help behind the scenes that make this podcast work. Feeling lazy about promoting your podcasts and videos? Memento FM has your back. Their seamless platform cuts and promotes all your content effortlessly. It's laziness approved. Try Memento FM today.